This is the Law School Show. Throughout my career, I found having the right supports in place were critical. Discovering the Supreme Court Justice behind the resume. Well, just imagine, imagine going to law school and there's no charter. Sharing their stories and advice on how they succeeded in their outstanding careers. It's a judicial job, though, unlike any other. And how they shaped legal history. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Court is now in session. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Law School Show. My name is Amos Vang, and I will be your host for this episode. Behind the lines of legal doctrine, behind the paragraphs of stare decisis, and behind the phrases of obiter dicta, there is a level of poeticism and artistry in the world of judging. Communication is an extremely important skill, and as current law students may know, both oral and written communication are equally important. So, how does one communicate effectively through a judgment? How does a judge become a strong communicator? How does a judge draw from their past experiences into their work? Well, my guest for today is a judge that is a great example of an excellent communicator in the highest court in the land. My guest is the Honorable Andromache Karakazanis, current Queenie Justice of the Supreme Court of Canada. Justice Karakatsanis was born on October 3, 1955, in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. She graduated from the University of Toronto with a Bachelor of Arts in English Literature in 1977. After her time in undergraduate studies, Justice Karakatsanis graduated from Osgoode Hall Law School in 1980, and she would be called to the Ontario Bar in 1982. This began an outstanding legal career for Justice Karakatsanis, one which continues to this very day. From 1982 to 1983, she was a law clerk at the Ontario Court of Appeal. In her legal practice, Justice Karakatsanis enjoyed a diverse range of expertise, including criminal, civil, and family litigation. Justice Karakatsanis served 15 years in the Ontario Public Service, with some of those years being the Deputy Attorney General. She began her judicial career in 2002, when she was appointed to the Ontario Superior Court of Justice, and she would then be promoted up to the Ontario Court of Appeal in 2010. Thanks to her expertise and versatility, in October 2011, Prime Minister Stephen Harper nominated Justice Karakatsanis to be Pweenie Justice of the Supreme Court of Canada. Justice Karakatsanis still currently serves as a Supreme Court Justice. As of the date of this recording, June 30th, 2022, Justice Karakatsanis is known to the public as a justice that is getting close to 11 years of judging on the Supreme Court. But here at the Law School Show, we know Justice Karakatsanis as a legend. Versatile, bold, and a natural-born leader, the Honorable Andromache Karakatsanis joins me on the show today. Justice Karakatsanis, thank you so much for coming on to the show. 
Well, it's my pleasure, uh, Amos, and I have to say you've been too generous in your introduction. <laughs> so let's start off from the beginning. Going all those years back, decades upon decades back, what inspired you to go to law school? Now, it is decades. I have to say, when you gave my date of birth, I thought my guess is that I was called to the bar before your date of birth. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, and it was um, actually, it was 1982, the year the charter was born. So um, it's hard to believe it was so long ago. Sometimes it feels like yesterday. But going to law school, well, it was really never much of a decision for me. Um, like many immigrants, my parents believed in education, and it was understood that I would go to university and that I would have to pick a profession. And um, so I loved the arts, and law seemed like a logical choice. I thought that it would offer me an opportunity to do interesting work and, um, and, and um, be able to help people as well. So it seemed like a natural choice at the time. And it, it, as we would see from your career as it progressed, it was certainly, I mean, a great choice, you know, to, to, to have seen, to have looked back on the last many decades. And before you went to law school, though, you, again, going all those years back, back to your very, very early days, you originally worked as a server at your parents' restaurant in Toronto at a place called Top of the Mall. And I believe you served... Traditional uh, souvlaki, I think, at the time, or I don't mean everything. Don't believe everything you read in the newspapers. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, I worked in my dad's restaurant. Um, no, it was not a Greek restaurant. No souvlaki. Um, it was a pancake and steakhouse. But I did do everything. I worked as a host, as a as a manager, as a server. We pitched in. I worked. Um, during the summers and uh, uh, sometimes uh, during the year and did whatever was ever needed. So that was a great learning experience. Yeah. And I was going to ask as well, what were the challenges that, that you had to face back then when you were still working there? Well, first of all, I was the boss's daughter and I was expected to go in and kind of manage people who'd been working for my dad since before I was born. And it really um, taught me a different way of being able to motivate people. I didn't feel comfortable just saying, you know, do this, do that. It would always be by example or by suggestion or just finding ways to make, um, to, to make it um, easy for uh, people to work uh, in a certain way. So it certainly was a huge uh, opportunity for me to learn how to manage. Um, it also, I mean, I've always recommended for young people to go into the service industry um, because you learn to, to, to work with people. You learn to deal with people. Um, you know, it, it's, it's true the customer is always right. Um, most of the time, <laughs> but you learned how to deal with people, even when occasionally they may be a little difficult. And this is a point of similarity that I found with Justice Rothstein's 
uh, interview. Well, my previous conversation with Justice Marshall Rothstein, as as you know, he worked on a dining car in his early years, and he worked with so many different people, not to mention the extremely long hours. I think it was up to about 14 hours a day because his rail line was going between provinces as well. And it just so happened that it was going into, I think, BC, if I remember correctly. Um, regardless, um, uh, it went through a couple of, t- of time zones. And as a result, you had to, uh, to accommodate for those extra bit of hours. So if a 12-hour day, which is already long enough, becomes a 14-hour day very, very quickly. But then you also have some short days as well. But yeah, he worked with so many different people on, on the railway and on the dining car. But yeah, so many points of similarities there as well. Yeah, uh, I've, heard, to- I've heard those stories. They're great stories. And yes, a 14-hour day is good training for the Supreme Court of Canada. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I can imagine that the days are extremely busy uh, at the Supreme Court uh, for you and for everyone uh, working there as well. And what were some of the most important lessons? Going back to your time in service uh, as a server, what were the most important lessons that you learned from the challenges that you faced during that time serving? I think, I think probably the most important lesson of, of, of that job and, and of many others has been the importance of being able to um, have a good relationships with people, to understand things from their point of view, to be able to communicate with them, to really try to um, uh, try to find ways to accommodate and to build and to work together. I, th- I really do think that that is the key to, um, uh, one of the most important keys to success probably in life, not just in work, but really uh, respecting people, taking the time to really look at things um, from their perspective, to understand where they come from, and then how to, um, how to find common ground. Those, I think, are the lessons that um, probably have stayed with me the longest. And those lessons are also important, well, as you know, in law school, really in anything as well. Um, and I, I remember just on many occasions where even during my articling, when I was still articling, um, where, where there was a lot, there were so many different areas where clients were having difficulty agreeing or trying to settle on a certain point. And the thing about being able to empathize with other people, empathy, sympathy, that these are important skills, especially when it comes to mediation and and negotiation. Because if you can't empathize with the other side or you can't empathize with each other, the success, the chances for success in resolving that conflict are going to be so much lower. And that's what I found, not just in the legal system, but even in just daily life as well. If you're not able to look from the other person's perspective, it's not going to end well uh, most of the time. And it's really sad when, when there are cases that don't end well and that get uh, delayed much longer into life and much longer years down the line. And I, it, I see that all the time in articling back, back then. So. Well, you'll continue to see that. I mean, it is so important in law and, as you say, important in life. 
it, uh, it's important in relationships with people, with your kids, with your friends, with those who are your, um, uh, I was going to say adversary, but no, those who are on the other side in an, in an adversarial system. Absolutely. And communication is a very important skill that is required when it comes to negotiating as well. And from an early age, from an early time, you, based on your time pursuing a BA in English literature, I can imagine communication is such an important part of your degree and everything that you've done during that time. Looking back at that time and comparing it to your law school time and now your time in judging, what were the similarities and differences between writing for a literary class and writing for a law class? Well, um, I mean, I think there are a lot of similarities. You always, I've always tried to write for clarity. And I find that trying to be as clear as possible in your writing forces you to be as clear as possible in your thinking. So it's a good discipline, not just for the purposes of communication, but for the purposes of analysis, for analytical thinking, for trying to, simple writing only follows simple thinking. So trying to simplify a complex issue and, or, and communicate it um, clearly is something that's common, um, common to writing uh, essays and exams in, for an English uh, lit degree. Um, and also for uh, writing judgments. I mean, I've always loved reading. I've, I, even to this day, I read, um, I read some, I read literature every night. That's how I end my day. That's how I get to sleep. Um, I've always loved reading. Um, I, I have not, um, I've not done the creative writing, if you will. I mean. I shouldn't say not at all, um, but that's not been the, that was not the main thrust of my uh, work uh, during university or during law school or now. It's been always about writing in a way that communicates things clearly. Now, communicating clearly though means you have to think about it from the perspective of the person who's reading. I mean, we like to say, um, you know, in judgment writing that it's. Um, it's reader-based, not writer-based, that it's point first, so you're preparing the reader. But I, I uh, to this day, will go through multiple, multiple drafts of a judgment, and each time I try to think about it, well, somebody who's reading this fresh, what are they, what do they need to understand in order to um, uh, understand uh, what the decision is about and, and, and what it's going to be? Um, what are the words that I need to choose and use to create the framework that will best communicate, um, um, best communicate whatever it is, the, the message, the ruling, um, uh, the concerns. So, yeah, writing is wonderful. And at the, and at the end of the day, uh, it is a joy. It is creative. Um, it always, it, it, in one sense, but it's not writing poetry or novels. I think that's a completely different skill. And uh, I, I admire 
the readers that I, um, the writers that I uh, read, um, but I, um, I'm not sure that I would have that skill. Who knows? Maybe one day I'll give that a try. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's, yeah, the point first legal writing is something that I still remember very clearly, even back during my time in law school as well, that that's been drilled into us, you know, point first, always want to be clear. You want to tell people what you're talking about. You want them to know as soon as possible to know what they're going to be talking about and why you, you, you argue that point. Um, but I'm also really, I was going to say one of the things I do when I'm reading um, a draft that, uh, of a judgment that I've written is I look at every single detail every single detail and I ask myself, is this necessary? Is it relevant? Is it gonna distract somebody? Are they gonna see a date and think, oh, I've got to remember that date because it's important? So anyway. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. I am curious though, because you mentioned that you like to read and in terms of that, that's how you relax and how you basically end your day. And I'm curious as to what, like, what types of literature that you, what types of genre that you like to read, what types of literature that you like to read, what are the, the literary pieces that you tend to turn to, to help you relax at the end of a long, busy day? Well, um, it's quite broad. I, um, I mean, I do like reading mysteries and uh, thrillers. Um, and uh, so that's probably, um, you know, really relaxing. Um, but it, I, I, I love, I mean, we have wonderful Canadian authors. Um, right now I'm reading a book by Geraldine Brooks. So anything that has, um, uh, so it's a real broad range. Going back to your time in law school, and this would have been around the 1970s, what was it like back then? And comparing it to now, what are the similarities and differences, that, at least from what you found, between law school back then and what law students currently face today? Well, law school back then, um, I have to say, I, um, I got married during law school. I did a term at uh, Parkdale, uh, which was a poverty law clinic. Um, it was a busy time for me. So I wasn't, I think, as immersed in law school as uh, some of the, um, as I could have been. Um, it's hard for me to say, um, I think it's hard for me to compare because I'm not quite sure what it's like today. But um, you know, I really loved the poverty law clinic experience. I, I actually liked learning about all of the areas of law that I wouldn't naturally have um, necessarily picked. I did, um, you know, I, I having taken, um, I think it was constitutional with Peter Hogg. He was such a great teacher. I took everything he taught. So I ended up doing tax courses, trust courses, all of these courses that I might not have picked. And that kind of broad uh, education in the, you know, what sometimes are called the, you know, the, the, the basics, the different areas of law, I found very helpful. 
um, because even if I might not have naturally gravitated to them uh, uh, as an area of interest, everything you get into is eventual. I mean, if you get in deep enough, everything is interesting. And every area of law has consequences for, you know, relationships in society and, and shapes those relationships uh, and, uh, you know, shapes our, our society as well. So I found law very intellectually interesting. I found that the poverty law clinic was just an amazing experience for me. I spent a whole term and it was a, a new world. It opened my eyes to really um, challenges um, that people face that I uh, had not really appreciated on a, on a, certainly not on an emotional level. So law school was, was, um, was great, but it's not that I, I mean, I, I, I didn't completely fall in love with, with the law at that time. It, that happened for me more gradually over time. My passion developed um, as I worked with the law and saw kind of the impact that it has on a daily basis. Yeah, well, what I also found was that it wasn't just you, but a lot of people even nowadays in law school, they tend to find their passion in law during law school or even after law school when they go into legal practice or even into different professions overall. And it goes back to what you were saying about the impact. I think that there, it's one thing to look at things in law school at cases or at legal concepts in a vacuum, so to speak, since we're in a four-walled classroom, we, were, we don't see the real person necessarily behind the case and whatnot. But it's a whole different thing when you start, especially when you start articling, when you see an actual case happen in real time and you see the real person that you're representing or you're, you're taking part in supporting representing and you see the other side of the coin as well. This is something that I found also in my own personal career so far. I mean, if you can call a few years, I mean, a career. Um, that's what I found as well. It, 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 in law school, the, the I don't want to say the material was dry, but it's just that I just couldn't relate to it as much because I just didn't see the events happening in real time. But once I just started articling, wow, it was a whole different story altogether. Like, there were even topics where I was just not interested in back in law school where I was starting to think, whoa, this is actually really interesting. I want to learn more about this. And that's what I found as well. Yeah, I think that's, that's right. I mean, I loved the puzzles at law school. I mean, that was intellectually fun, you know, working through the different um, you know, legal uh, rules and regimes and the cases and how they worked. I mean, the, the puzzle solving was fun. But it was when I was in practice, private practice, and particularly, you know, with criminal cases or family law cases where you just see what a huge impact it has on people, that it becomes um, more immediate and more meaningful and more satisfying. Certainly. And you mentioned the emotional aspect as well of these cases, and especially in family law. I articled in a family law firm. As, as well, how do you parse between like the emotional aspects of the case and the and the more and the legal aspects and the non-emotional aspects of the case? Because I can imagine 
that I mean, I don't even have to imagine. Like I've seen a lot of the family law cases, and it's just without saying too much, it is very, very emotional with so much on the line and so much history and pain being put forward. How do you, how do you parse yourself bef- between these two, uh, between the, the emotional and the non-emotional? Well, I'll start by by agreeing that family law cases are tough. I know as a trial judge. Um, I know that they were really the toughest to do. They were the most draining. Um, at the end of the day, though, sometimes they were the most satisfying because occasionally you would, um, I, I would come out and think that I really made a difference to that couple, that I had been able to talk to them in a way to put aside some of the acrimony and focus on their children. And um, so there were times when it was deeply, deeply satisfying, but it was the toughest I found, at least as a trial judge. And, um, and they were difficult as well as, uh, um, you know, as a lawyer. I mean, my husband did practice uh, a fair bit of family law and he could never say no to a family law client in the end, even though he kept trying to kind of, um, reduce that part of his practice because, because you do get such a sense of satisfaction when you feel you can make a difference. So the emotions, how do you cope? This is true as a lawyer. It's true as a judge. It's true as a Supreme Court judge. Um, you bring your emotions with you. You bring who you are with you. You can't divorce um, you know, your own perspective your own lived experiences, your own perspectives, um, your own kind of reaction to to the situation, um, it's there. So I think the most important thing to do is to recognize it and to be able to identify what are the emotions, what are the perspectives, what might be some kind of um, inherent kind of attitudes that you have that you should watch out for. And I think that once you acknowledge them, you can, there are, people have different ways of putting them aside or testing them so that when you do deal with the problem, when you do try to find a solution, that you do so in a way that's intellectually honest and that recognizes um, what the possible influences are and you've examined them and you've accounted them and you're not playing an inappropriate role. So I I can tell you as a judge, I would have various um, little disciplines that I would go through. In a family case, I would often say, okay, this is how I, my reaction to this, you know, this case, how would I feel if it was reversed? And if it was dad who was asking for this instead of mom? Um, in a criminal case, in a charter case, I would say, um, well, yes, I mean, the police found the drugs. That's why the person is here. But what if they hadn't found the drugs? And what if uh, the, the same circumstances occurred, but there, w- there was nothing to find? There was nothing found. So these are just, um, I think we all have different ways of um, being as I, as I said, intellectually honest, recognizing what, 
what influences are at play, what emotions are there, and then trying to set them aside and step back. And this takes us back, I think, to kind of where we started this interview, um, being able to see the other side, being able to imagine. It's empathy, it's imagination, but I don't think you can really engage with, um, you know, the the arguments on on the other side or with the with the um, kind of the valid points on the other side unless you can uh, recognize the emotions, put them aside, and really try to put yourself in the shoes of the other. Um, I mean. That's an act of imagination. It's also kind of an act of humanity. You have to, you have to understand the human costs. Otherwise, if it's just a puzzle, if it's just an analytical uh, road, you risk taking a wrong turn. Um, if you don't also think about it at the end of the day, as how is this actually? Um, what does this actually mean for real people? It's really fascinating to see how a perspective shift can change almost everything of how not just you looking at a case, but how the, a typical person would look at a specific situation in general. And I find that that's really fascinating because it changes a person's attitudes towards a specific individual or towards a, a, a specific group. It takes in a way it takes the golden rule and it completely ex expands it and makes it hit even harder and closer to home you know due to others as you would have them do to you and this level of empathy to me it seems like it takes a lot of practice it takes years of experience to do that not just in professional experience but also in personal life experience as well as a person gets older i find that you know myself being still in my 20s a lot of not not I want to say most I, I I will say a lot of people in my age group are doing their best. Don't get me wrong; they're trying their absolute best to be to be empathetic towards other people. But since we're still young, we still don't have as much of a life experience yet, as much time on this earth yet. I mean, I know for me, I'm I, sometimes I struggle to be empathetic too. Sometimes uh, <laughs> I tend to be quite cynical sometimes and. Um, you know, some of my friends are like, hey, uh, Amos, you're a little bit too, too, too negative on this point. And, so, and I do agree sometimes. But I, I guess it's like, it's also an age thing as well. Like the older you get, the more empathetic you tend to be, or at least that's what the, the trend tends to be. But again, to me, it seems like it takes a lot of practice and life experience to be able to be a master at this. I think it comes easier for some people than others. Um, but I do think that it takes, uh, it takes um, effort and you have to want to. I mean, you really have to believe that it's important. So um, I do think that, um, uh, you know, having a lifetime of being able to see other perspectives is certainly helpful. But I mean, I have uh, law clerks who keep me kind of energized as well. You bring other things to the table, uh, Amos. <laughs> you bring a lot of energy and enthusiasm. And, um, and, and also just, I find that many of the, of, the, of the law clerks that I get, the young graduates, they've just been so immersed uh, intellectually in the theory, in the, you know, in the whole range of, 
of legal debate on issues that I just find it really enriching. So everybody brings something uh, to the conversation. Definitely, definitely. And I hope, I hope even when I get older, I still have that kind of energy and enthusiasm left in me a few decades from now. Um, it's a prerequisite for this court, so. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. And well, for you, law school would, would, of course, end and, you know, you would begin clerking at the Ontario Court of Appeal. And some, some many years later, you would become a judge at the Ontario Court of Appeal as well. What were the similarities and differences between your time clerking and judging at this very same court? And what were the most important lessons that you brought from your time clerking into your, ju- your time judging, rather, at the Ontario Court of Appeal? Well, I have to say that it, you know, when I was appointed to the Court of Appeal, it felt a bit like a homecoming. I had loved my year clerking, and I loved my time as a judge on the uh, Court of Appeal um, in Ontario. It was, um, uh, as a law clerk, I, um, uh, I really did have to learn the discipline of seeing things, the arguments, you know, that were presented by all the parties. Um, I learned the uh, value of research, um, of looking at the jurisprudence, not just uh, in Canada, but uh, throughout um, uh, throughout the world. And I got to clerk with people like G. Arthur Martin, who was, you know, a legend in criminal law. And so it was inspiring. Um, I learned a lot. Um, I went to all of the in-person appeals at, uh, you know, prisoner appeals in Kingston at the time with the panel, you know, with Justice Martin and two other judges. And um, so I I, um, got a sense of, again, the people who were behind cases. And so I loved my time clerking and I loved my time at the Court of Appeal for many of of the same reasons working with the other judges who were, I mean, being a trial judge is pretty lonely. You are in your, um, you're in your trial court alone. Um, things are moving quickly. You have to manage the trial. You have to manage the process. You have to make rulings, usually kind of on, you know, on the bench. Um, and so it's a very different kind of uh uh, environment than an appellate environment. So that reflective, um, take your time, think it through uh, luxury <laughs> um, was there when I was clerking and also as a judge of the Court of Appeal. And that, that time at the Ontario Court of Appeal, I can imagine, was so helpful in so many different ways in helping you. As you mentioned, you, know, you had the time to think through a lot of the issues that were at play nowadays. Not as time as we necessarily like, but yes, <laughs> way more than a trial judge. Yeah. And I mean, there's something, um, I mean, I, I loved my colleagues and, um, you know, you sit with different people uh, from week to week, um, but collegial decision-making, uh, I mean, three bet heads are always better than one. So, uh, it's just, it was a fabulous opportunity um, really to learn and grow as well. 
Yeah. And that opportunity for growth is, is something that, I mean, it's also a thing that also in any era of, of legal career or articling or world practice, it, there's always room for growth as well. Nowadays, it's different because there's so much that's happening at the same time, especially now after COVID in articling and practice and really anything in law school and being no exception, everything's going so fast. Everything is, it's so voluminous. There's so much work to be done. There's just so much happening at the same time. You only have X number of hours to do Y number of cases or something like that, at least from the, from at my point in my career. And sometimes I feel, and not just myself, some of our listeners who are brand new lawyers or still articling, we feel kind of overwhelmed by that because we don't really have a chance to you know, sit back, parse through, think through the cases, or think through the actual legal doctrine and apply that. It seems kind of like, oh, we had to read this and fill out, fill out this draft or da 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 It feels like almost like, like a sprint rather than a marathon. And we don't really have time to really digest the information. So, I mean... How do we manage that? How do we manage to find growth even in a time where everything's moving at breakneck pace when everyone's just sprinting to the finish rather than jogging to the finish? Well, both sprinting and marathons require training. They require preparation. And I think that um, don't underestimate the value of the work that you've done during law school, the work that you will do in every case. I always used to think about it, you know, when it would take me longer than I thought, or when it would take longer than, you know, um, and maybe if you're in private practice, then then you can dock it. I always used to think about it as an investment in myself. I was taking the time to learn to do it because it would help me uh, in future. And so every time I did have a task, I would take the time um, that I could to kind of do as, 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 as the job as well as possible because I saw it not only as uh, helping me with the, with, with the particular task I had before me then, but as something that I would be able to call on for the future. Um, so that's the one thing that I would say. It's, it's like even as a trial lawyer, or you're thinking on your feet all the time, but you can do that or as an advocate in an appeal. But you can do that because you've done the preparation up front, because you know your case, you've done the work that needs to be done so that you can have that kind of agility um, to, uh, to, to uh, be able to deal with perhaps the unexpected. I think, though, your question is a bit more, um, uh, it's just how do we cope? <laughs> with everything we have to do. It's, it's the age old, um, not just work-life balance, but work balance. And I think that it's true that things are faster. I mean, when I articled, uh, Amos, we, we, didn't have, um, we didn't have email. When you sent a letter in the mail, you knew you had a couple of days before it got there and you got the answer back. Um, between each step. And now it's just kind of, you know, with email, I try not to look at my email after dinner. I don't always succeed, but I mean, it's just a different pace. And so I think 
um, I think we are going to have to, as a profession, as a society, find uh, ways to find time for some quiet time, some reflective time, some time to kind of recharge and find that balance, which is, it's an age-old problem. I just think the solutions are, um, are a little different, but. I'm yeah. sorry, I have no magic answer for that one. Uh, <laughs> I'm still working at it. I still haven't found my uh, my balance. Um, I, I thought I had, and then I got here, and the work is really quite all-consuming. So uh, I don't have the answers. Uh, I can just uh, empathize with the problem. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's a great answer. And it's actually very encouraging to hear that there's the need for work balance and work-life balance. I think especially since COVID happened and now that we're starting to reopen from, from the pandemic and all the lockdowns and whatnot, most people are realizing the importance of, of balance. And especially when it comes to time with family, there's been, there's been some articles that's it's not regarding law, but in, I think it's in the engineering field where there are people who are, refusing to return back to a complete in-person environment because they realized when they work from home, they can be around their kids. They can be around their grandkids for some of them. They can be around family and take care of them. And the importance of that, a lot of people, are, again, are starting to realize just how important it is for their own health as well. So I think it's really encouraging to see that there's, there seems to be a bit of a culture shift with how we view work and not to say that we've we haven't viewed work in this way ever um it, it, we're better off than many different canada in general is better off than many countries around around the world where work-life balance isn't even a concept in in some some areas but you know we we're starting to see improvements here in canada across the board in law i think there's no exception to that in when i was still in law school there was already a lot of talk about mental health and balance and having a balanced lifestyle that balances your work life and your and your actual life outside of the law and we're starting to see a lot of big changes and i think these are good changes at the end of the day well i think it's i think it's true that it is very important and i think it is also um people have to find their own uh, what works for them and um and, and, you know, I, for myself, I've found that, that regular vacations where maybe they're shorter than I'd like, but a time when I can actually turn, turn it off is important to me, having that opportunity to recharge. But throughout my career, I found having the right supports in place were critical. Um, you know, I had childcare before I had, I was willing to pay for, for childcare before I had furniture. Um, well, I shouldn't say furniture, but before I bought anything, kind of, it was a different priority, is, is what I'm trying to say. And and I had, um, um, you know, I had uh, my husband and I both worked out the kinds of supports we needed and how we could support each other uh, and find the right balance to raising a family. Um, it's always been a challenge and uh, maybe with technology gives us the opportunity to have um, a greater range of solutions. Mm -hmm. Myself during COVID, I um, 
often went to my office all alone, but I liked a separation between my uh, work and my uh, non-work life as well. Not all the time, but sometimes. We all have to look for, I think, the solutions that, that work for us um, as uh, individuals and also for our own complications in our own lives. Absolutely. And that, like you said, said it perfectly. It really depends on the person, what, they, what works for them individually. And going back to your career, there are so many things that happen in your career that work perfectly. I, I, want, I don't want to say perfectly, but greatly in your career as well. And you... Uh, it wasn't planned. <laughs> I, I can tell you, nothing was planned. I, you know, I was in private practice. I was named a part-time member of the liquor, of the liquor license board. And one day they said, um, how would you like to do this full-time as a full-time vice chair and kind of um, uh, look at our, uh, our hearing, our tribunal uh, part of our work? And so I thought I was going on a, on a brief kind of uh, a, 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 a short um, time away from the firm. And it turned out that I never went back. And, and I have to say that all of my jobs in the public service, um, it was somebody coming to me and saying, well, um, you know, it was the uh, deputy attorney general who came to me and said, I, what about being secretary of native affairs for Ontario? Um, so I said, well, I don't know anything about that. Um, but it was an interesting opportunity. I took it and I just loved it. And that was work that was important, um, uh, meaningful and work that has really, I've been able to draw on in my job here. So I do, I do think, I mean, I do tell young lawyers that um, don't worry if you don't have a career plan. Um, it is important to be open to opportunities. And I think it's true for not just myself, but my colleagues would say some of the most interesting opportunities were not ones that we had looked for. Um, and, um, but they, they were interesting. It gave us an opportunity to learn um, and uh, opened up new doors uh, and other opportunities. So yes, it, it was very, but I would say it was very lucky as well being in the right place at the right time, but being open to an opportunity. Uh, so it's been a bit of an unusual career, but, uh, but I can tell you, I didn't, uh, I certainly didn't, didn't uh, plan it. And it worked out though. That's the important part. It worked out. It worked out for me. <laughs> <laughs> and now finally getting to your time, well, just before getting to the Supreme Court, you had to apply for it, of course, and there was a whole procedure behind it as well. How difficult was it? I'm curious as, as to, like, what was the procedure like applying for the whole process? Well, I, um, I've been on the court so long that I've been there before the application process came into effect. So in those days, it was, um, I did not have to put in an application. Um, it, you know, it, it was, uh, um, it was the, they came to me and said, would you be prepared to let your name go forward? And um, I have to say, I didn't, 
give that, um, I mean, how could you say no? And um, that was my husband's reaction as well. But I, it, there was no application process. I didn't think that I really, um, I didn't expect that I would be named to the court at all. At the time, I was the junior member of the Court of Appeal. And uh, I, so I really didn't expect it. Um, I thought all of the judges on the Court of Appeal were fabulous. Any one of them would have made a great um, justice of the Supreme Court. So no, I didn't have the angst uh, of applying. Um, you know, I don't know that I would have. I loved what I was doing. I loved the uh, Ontario Court of Appeal. And, uh, and as I said at the time, I was quite junior. So I can't tell you what that feels like. We did have to go through a committee hearing process, however. And um, uh, so that was a bit nerve wracking. I was more worried, I think, about whether my French was going to be good enough because um, I was comfortable, very comfortable in French. But, you know, still, um, I was worried about, um, you, you know, just how polished it would be. And uh, uh, so I, I was nervous until I got my very first question in, in French, which was about the charter. And I launched into my answer. And then after that, I really enjoyed the committee hearing. But, um, but I was used to committee hearings as well as a deputy minister, uh, you know, with the Ontario Public Service. I'd had to appear before um, the legislative committees on occasion. Um, and answer some difficult questions. So it wasn't a, an unknown for me either. Yeah, and I've had a chance to watch a little bit of the uh, of the community hearing as, as well. And yeah, it, it, it shows that you were really comfortable, you know, at the time in, at the community hearing. And But it's fascinating because so much can change in just 10 years. I mean, you were appointed in 2011. That was only, I was still in high school at the time. So... <laughs> 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 well just imagine imagine going to law school and there's no chart yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah my my articling principal yeah. he he was called i think in 1980 so literally two years like so he saw only two years of practice before the charter came into, into effect and it's like wow <laughs> <laughs> I was called in 1982, and in fact, I was clerking at the Court of Appeal when the first charter decision came, the first charter appeal came to the Court of Appeal. Wow. Yeah. And, wow. Um, yeah, I was clerking for the Chief Justice at the time and had to stay up all night to photocopy uh, all of the American cases, I think there were more than a hundred of them, that were cited in the fact, and then it was... Um, I remember it well. It was shortly after that the court brought in rules that the lawyers had to file, you know, books of authority. <laughs> anyway, it's, you know, it seems a long time ago some days, but sometimes, Alice, uh, I have to say it feels like yesterday. Oh, yeah, I, 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 can, I, can, imagine, uh, I can imagine that as well. The, one of my professors... Um, who was also on the show as well, Professor Joseph Magnet, a great friend of mine, uh, even to this day, he started teaching constitutional law before the charter came into effect. And once it did, he had to change his entire curriculum like, yeah. from the ground up because it was 
almost completely different. So it used to be just division of powers and anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And as you mentioned, it, it, it's it's also it's like a long time ago, but it seems like it was just yesterday. And I can imagine from the work at the Supreme Court, it's they're they're all very unique cases, but they're all similar in a way. And I was I was always curious as to you know what was a day in the life of Supreme Court Justice Andromache Kerrigan Sanders? What's your daily routine when you're working on these cases? Well, um, it's not interviews <laughs> for the, the law school show. The daily routine is a lot, it's a long day, um, but it depends. If we're sitting, then it's very intense. I, um, I try not to, to schedule any, any social events, anything during the two sitting weeks because um, you're prepping before court, you're prepping after court, it's just intense. Um, 20, well, it, it's very intense. The day starts, um, often I'll work at home in the morning. I'll be at the office by usually eight. Uh, we'll go do our hearings. I will try to leave, by, you know, around seven o'clock, come home for a quick dinner, and then I'm working again in the evening here. Um, I'll be reading, I'll be writing, uh, talking with colleagues, with law clerks. It's just very intense uh, when we're sitting. When we're not sitting, um, we do try to get out, um, meet with different legal communities, with students, with, uh, um, we do see that as an important part of our job as well. Um, but it's, you know, you have to have a lot of stamina for this job. But I have to say that um, it's never a chore for me. I mean, if I didn't have other obligations, I can see how I would be completely immersed in the work. The cases are quite different, but they're all important and they're, they all are fascinating. At the end of the day, once you get into it, there isn't a case that isn't interesting and important and fascinating and that I don't, um, um, no, I just love them all. It's, it's, an un, it's a judicial job though, unlike any other. Um, you know, when I was a trial judge or even a court of appeal, usually a trial judge is about fact-finding. It's about witnesses, evidence. Um, it's managing a trial process. It's very exciting. Um, and it's very, it's about human nature, human drama. Court of appeal, sometimes you get an original uh, legal issue and that would be quite different. But often you were just applying the rules, a framework that had been developed by the Supreme Court. At the Supreme Court, you know, for, I, I have to say all of my public service uh, work um, has really um, served me well, I think, at the court because I understand how government works. I understand how policy making works. I understand how, um, you know, I, I just dealt with difficult public interest issues oversight of the administration of justice in a, in a different way. And we are often being asked to make adjustments or to deal with unique um, uh, situations and apply legal frameworks in a way 
that um, accommodates, um, you know, new or emerging um, kind of scenarios or, or issues. And that kind of work is different. Um, collegial decision-making, you know, among nine people, that is quite a unique experience. So it's very different. Um, challenging, fascinating, rewarding. I can't tell you how honored I feel um, to have this job, what a responsibility it feels like. Um, and, um, you know, I still am just thrilled. I still, to this day, as I walk up to the courthouse, can't believe I'm here. Uh, just, um, it's just, it's a real privilege. Certainly is. And, you know, you know, Canada is very grateful to have had, to have had you and to continue to have you on, on, on the court as well. And I mean, yeah, I can tell from just your passion for the, the job that it really shows in even the legal decisions as well. I'm glad you mentioned the collegiality and the importance of collegi the collegial decision-making, especially at the Supreme Court of Canada. Because I think we've reached a point, I'm not, just talk I'm not talking about the profession, I'm just talking about like, just in general, we've reached a point where disagreement is kind of taboo in a way. Like taboo amongst just the average person in the sense that if a person disagrees with someone, they're not their friend, they're enemies or they're whatever. And I don't know, maybe I was raised differently on this point. Um, I'm, of, I'm a Canadian-born Chinese person. I'm, I'm second generation Canadian and I'm of Chinese descent. And the way how I was raised as a person of Chinese descent is that in Chinese culture, if you're disagreeing with somebody, you're not disagreeing with everything that they're saying. You're disagreeing with some of what they're saying. And if two people are debating, it's not that one side is completely right and the other side's completely wrong. It's that both sides are right and wrong to differing, varying degrees. That's how I was raised, at least. So I don't know. Like, it, it, for me, it always struck me strange how increasingly I'm seeing more and more people breaking friendships or creating enemies over disagreements and some of these disagreements can be so petty as well well i'm i'm the daughter of immigrants as well and um so i really grew up um appreciating that i could draw on two different cultures and i saw that as a strength and i think that for the most part um we have um we have welcomed differences. We have, for the most part, um, really turned those into strengths as a society. Um, I think that um, part of what you're, you know, the, the, what you're talking about is that disagreement is, is healthy. It's inevitable. We all have different perspectives. What's important, I think, is how we disagree with each other, that it's done respectfully, that you do your best to understand the other, um, the other perspective. And that when you do disagree, 
that it, you understand it's not personal. You're disagreeing with a particular proposition or with a particular um, um, point of view or on a particular question. You know what? It, it's not a disagreement. It, it's not a rejection of the person. And so um, that is, I think, the key for us at the court, not to take things personally. It's a disagreement on a question of law, and it's not a personal, uh, uh, it's not personal. So we, we have lunch together. When we're sitting, we have lunch together um, most days. Um, we, uh, it's a general rule that we won't talk about the cases. We laugh together. We enjoy each other's company. We do, we have social events um, uh, from time to time because keeping those relationships um, is important because it's only when you start from a position of respect and, um, you know, from a, a connection, a human connection, that you can um, discuss the disagreement in a way that allows you to narrow it, to um, uh, narrow it as much as possible, to express it in a respectful way uh, and in a clear way, and then move on. It's, uh, it's not personal. And if, if in my job, if I took it personally, every time I was in dissent, or every time a colleague, um, you know, was critical of a particular point of view, um, I, I'm not sure how you, you do this job if, if, if you feel that way. Um, I love the job and, um, and uh, part of it is the freedom to express your point of view, even if it is not a majority view, even if it's all alone. Some of the dissents, some of the dissents that I've written, some of them have been alone, completely alone. Some I've, I've spoken for four. But some of those are the most memorable for me because they're the ones that I felt passionate about. Um, and you just learn to kind of, you can only influence what you do. You can't, um, you can't. So at the end of the day, um, if it's a dissent, it's a dissent. I'm not going to worry about that. I put what I, I, I um, express my views when it's a matter of principle. I do it in the most respectful and clearest way I can. And I move on to the next challenge. That's and beautifully put. Occasionally <laughs> do I feel, think about this, <laughs> and feel bad about them. There's a, there's a couple of them that I, I um, really wish I hadn't been a dissent. But. <laughs> no, that, 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 that's beautifully put. That, that, that is beautifully put. I mean, that that is that's so important, and it's 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 always very refreshing to hear you know disagreement being and dissent being such an important part of not just the job but also of the court as well. It's the common law tradition. That is how our law has evolved over time. Everyone makes a contribution, and um, anyway, and it's the you know it's a fun part of the job is the writing and uh, writing dissents can be. Um, sometimes if, when you're writing for yourself, it can actually be liberating because you don't have to, we try our best to accommodate the views of our colleagues. So there's a lot of changes that happen to, um, to decisions that we write. I mean, 
I sometimes work just as hard on decisions that I have not authored. Sometimes I'm proudest of the decisions that I've helped shape that have been authored by someone else, um, you know, either for what I've persuaded the court to be able to address in a decision or sometimes persuaded them not to address. <laughs> you know, sometimes <laughs> it's, it's anyway. That's great. That's beautifully put. And, you know, and with your experience for the last 11 or so years, coming up to 11 years now, mm -hmm. it is very refreshing to hear that. It's very, very, it, it comes with also a lot of experience behind that as well. And, you know, I guess my next question would be, you know, what's the future hold for you? I mean, I mean, you're still, you still got plenty of time in your tenure as Supreme Court Justice. So yeah. what's next for you in the, into the future? Well, um, you know, it's uh, still, um, I, I can't imagine another job in law that I, that would be nearly as interesting. And I still have quite a few years, you know, um, uh, left. And so I imagine that I will be here for the next uh, eight and a half, uh, not quite nine years. Um, but you know what? I also love to paint. So I can, I can see that maybe one day when I leave here, I will, you know, maybe decide to pick up a paintbrush and uh, try my hand at being an artist. Um, I just, I've, I think I mentioned to you earlier, Amos, I've never planned things. So I don't have a plan right now. I love what I'm doing. I have no intention of leaving. Um, uh, the work, as long as the work is as fascinating as it is, I, I can't, I can't see that I, there's anything else I'd rather be doing. I just, I miss my family, my kids, my grandchildren, my mom, my, my, my my life was in Toronto, and uh, so I, I do miss my family. But um, but you know what? I'm heading off to the cottage. I'll see the kids, the grandchildren, and it'll be wonderful. A nice break. That, that's great. Yeah, that's great. And hobbies are also important. As um, for myself, I've, I I'm also a classical pianist. Uh, I was I I performed actually before even university as well. Um, I had dreams of, of going to Europe and studying music, but you know, that never actually came through. <laughs> so um, my, I, I had my parents to thank my, my mom's was, my mom was my piano teacher for most of my wow. life. Uh, my dad used to sing uh, European opera as well. Uh, he's a tenor baritone. So now he's an actor now. So, <laughs> Wow. And an IT consultant, so <laughs> he's got two things happening at the same time: IT and uh, and acting as well. He was actually just in, in a CBC um, web series uh, a few months ago, so tons of projects going around and stuff like that. So, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I see an art career, music career for you sometime in the future, maybe, or just even if it's just hobbies. It's so important to I find there's art somehow speaks to the soul. Yes. Uh, and it's important to keep the soul and the brain going, right? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. That's what my mom would also also say as well. Uh, it's, it's so it's so important, yeah. And as as we begin to close the episode, 
what is your advice to future law students, current law students, and brand new lawyers on traversing this brand new world? And by brand new world, I mean it's very obvious. Like I've probably said this over over a hundred times, over nine thousand times on this podcast. That's exaggerating a little bit. COVID has changed everything, quite literally everything, from the way how we work to the way how we live to the way how we socialize with other people. I mean, even the interview that we're doing right now, it was it would not have been possible without without Zoom and without COVID because before before it was unthinkable to do an interview on Zoom. So what is your advice to future members of the legal profession about success and traversing a very uncertain world post-COVID in whatever career that they choose to pursue? Well, you know, I think technology, and and that's, I mean, COVID has really brought out the uh, opportunities um, with technology. Um, It has also, I think, though, reinforced the importance of community. I think we've all missed those relationships with others. So I think, you know, the challenges may be new, the range of options or the the tools that we have may be new, but they're age-old problems. I mean, they've been around since before the email, before uh, technology picked up the pace. And every single job I've had, I've started off wondering if I was possibly going to succeed, if they were going to be disappointed, um, how did it happen? I mean, I think they've even got a term for it. I think they call it the imposter syndrome. And, And I would just say to young people, just focus on the work you're doing in, you know, try to do the best that you can. Um, with what you choose to do, and things will have a way of working out. You know, when I finished clerking at the Court of Appeal, I only wanted to be a Crown Attorney. I applied for one job, one, and I didn't get the job. I thought my career was over before I'd even started. But I like to tell this story because 15 years later, I was back as the Deputy Attorney General head of all crown attorneys in the province. So just because something doesn't work out the way you'd like it to, you know, that door closes, another one may open. And if, uh, I, and if you're just too worried about what's coming next, you may not get as much out of what you're doing. And you may not Um, notice the unusual or unexpected opportunities that open. So I would say just focus less on what the next job would be. Take advantage of what you're doing. Uh, Learn and grow and do, do the best you can. You're investing in yourself and opportunities will arise. Um, There'll always be challenges. There'll always be options on how you deal with them. Just take it one step at a time. And um, if you're true to yourself, if you um, act with integrity, I mean, that's what you've got in this profession is your integrity and your reputation. Um, Don't take the shortcuts. I think you'll do just fine. That's great advice for all of our listeners and all of our viewers. 
today and you know it, it, wise words of advice and this has been this has been a great you know it's been great to have you on the show madam justice uh thank you so much for taking the, the time out of your very i can imagine super busy schedule to come on on the show i i think i think everyone's going to be so inspired by by this and on behalf of everybody at the law school show, thank you once again so much for coming on to the show and to speak with us about your career and all the experiences that you've had over the last so many decades. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Amos. It's been a lot of fun. And I've enjoyed uh, speaking with you and getting a chance to, uh, to know you a little bit as well. And uh, good luck with your work and uh, your call to the bar next month. Thank you. Thank uh, you. And uh, good luck to all the students. I I uh, I always find it energizing speaking with young people, and I look forward to um, I look forward to watching your career. Thank you. <laughs> it's been fun. Thank you so much, Madam Justice, and thank you to our listeners and viewers for tuning in to this episode of the Law School Show. Once again, this was Justice. Andromache Karakatsanis on the show today. Tune in next time as we have another guest on the show and as we continue to give you great content on careers from across the country and even across the world on occasion as well. But once again, thank you so much for tuning in. Signing off for now. Until next time, this is Amos Vang. Stay safe and stay healthy. <laughs>